All right, good morning and welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you're joining with us for second service. We have two services on Sunday morning. The first service is the Bible prophecy update, and second service is our study through God's Word, verse by verse. And today we are in 2 Timothy, and our text is going to be chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Actually, Lord willing, we'll make it through to the end of the chapter. We'd invite our online church at this time to join with us in 2 Timothy. And while you're turning there, I want to mention a couple of things. The first of which is that we've launched our new website at jdfrog.org, if you haven't already. We'd encourage you to uh, check it out. And if you want, subscribe. For those of you online that have been asking why you have not received a notification yet, that's because we've not sent out a notification yet. We're still working on that. It's a work in progress. And we certainly appreciate your patience with us, and more importantly, your prayer for us as we get ready now to launch phase two. Also, last week we made an appeal. I want to make another appeal this week for prayer concerning the antennas that are on our church building. We have done everything we can legally uh, in terms of the due diligence uh, per the lease, subsequent to the termination of the lease. And so we've crossed every legal T and dotted every legal I, as it were. And now we're just committing it to the Lord and as such asking for prayer as well. And the reason for that is because it's going to really take a miracle for those antennas to come off of our building. We have many repairs that we need to make because of the leak and the damage uh, there uh, to the building from where the antennas are. And we just asked uh, for prayer specifically that they will find a new location as soon as possible and then relocate the antennas so we can commence with those repairs. So what I've been uh, asking people to do is just when you pray, uh, as you pray, you know, when you pray, when you eat together as a family, just say very simply, Lord, and get their antennas off that building. That's all you have to say. I mean, God knows all of the details. We don't have to pray instructional prayers. You know what instructional prayers are, right? That's where you pray and then you give God instructions on how to answer the prayer, like God doesn't know. <laughs> so just pray very simply, very specifically, that they'll find a new location, that we'll get those antennas off our building. All right. Second Timothy chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 14. I'll ask you uh, here to stand if you're able. If not, where you're seated is fine. Either way, you can follow along as I read. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy by the Holy Spirit and says, verse 14, Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best, verse 15, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. And who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, verse 16, because those who indulge in it 
will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene, or as some of your translations render it, cancer. Cancer. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, verse 20, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Sorry. They're stupid. Okay. Because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. How about that? Let's pray. If you would please join with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word in this portion that we have here before us today in your word. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to that which you would have us to see here, and open our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us, your church. And Lord, to receive and act upon and take heed to your word, that we be not be numbered amongst those who are merely hearers of your word, but those who are doers of your word. 
So Lord, we readily admit and humbly submit to you, because we know that it's only by way of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, will you do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You can be seated. Thank you. So you see the title there on the screen. That's what I want to talk with you about today. Actually, that's a misnomer. I don't want to talk about this. (laughs) But I need to. We need to. We need to talk about what can happen in our lives as Christians when we're given over to arguing and fighting, being quarrelsome and combative and argumentative. I have to confess that preparing to teach this passage of Scripture has been one of the more difficult ones for me personally, and not necessarily for the reasons you might think. The reason is, is that over the years God has been doing a work in my life in this area. And I have to confess that in this particular area, I have (laughs) been so guilty of being argumentative and actually looking for a fight. Bring it on. (laughs) In Jesus' name, of course. But (laughs) there was never a good argument that I would pass up. And again, the Lord has done and is doing a deep work in my life in this area, in this regard. I would be disingenuous at best, dishonest at worst, if I didn't say that to you and confess that to you. In my time seeking the Lord concerning today's teaching, I sense that this topic is more important today than it has ever been before. And I know that's kind of a a big and bold statement, but it's true. We are living in a day and at a time in this, the last moment of world history as we know it, human history as we know it. And this simple truth that Paul writes to Timothy about to remind God's people, and even more importantly, to warn God's people. This is a warning to take heed to, because of the seriousness of it. I think we are living in a time like no other, and the time is at hand. Let me say it this way. This is no time to be arguing with people. Think about this. People are dying and going to hell every day. We stand at the cusp of the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ. And those that will be left behind will enter in to the seven-year tribulation. And if they give their lives to Christ in the seven-year tribulation, it will cost them their life. They will be beheaded, and they will face unspeakable horror. Those who do not, well, they will spend eternity in hell. As I shared first service in the prophecy update, 
this work that God is doing in my life is such that I now see people as either saved or lost. And that's changed my heart towards people in a profound way. I don't look at people any other way anymore, because that's the reality, that's the truth. So when I'm out and about and I see somebody, the question I have to ask myself, are they saved? If they are not saved and they do not get saved, they are about to enter into the most horrific, unspeakable horror in the last seven years of human history. And then after that, they will plummet into a Christless hell, a Christless eternity. That's sobering, isn't it? Does that not change how you look at people? No longer do you look at someone and say, oh, Republican or Democrat? Oh, you're laughing. I'm glad you're laughing because that's laughable, isn't it? Left or right, conservative or liberal, white or black. I mean, I can just keep going, right? So can you. That's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. And we're going to see this at the end of the chapter when Paul very explicitly says, you need to pray that they come to their senses and repent. Because the devil has got them right where he wants them, taking them captive. And get this, they're actually doing the devil's will. How about that? They're actually, these are Christians that Satan has captured to do his bidding. What's his bidding? Oh, steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to get us to bite and devour and destroy one another for Him instead of Him. And He has been met in large measure with success, particularly on social media. So here's what's happening now. You go online, you go on social media, which by the way is getting infinitely more difficult. And these are Christians. These are people who profess Jesus Christ. And they're calling who the enemy has told them is the enemy. They're not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. They're calling them names. The question has to be asked and answered. How do you expect to win them to Christ if you're blasting them like that in the name of Christ? Shame on you. Shame on me. Your witness is destroyed. You have no chance. You have no chance of sharing Jesus Christ with them. And here's why. Sadly, 
you're too busy arguing with the saved to be reaching the lost. And Satan couldn't be happier. Can I just say it? Two words, stop arguing. That could be summed up. Our text today could be summed up with those two words. Stop arguing. Do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize the damage that's being done to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'll calm down in just, just a moment here. This is a biggie, you guys. And I, I speak as one who has really been on the other end of it, the wrong end of this. So today's teaching is really going to be experiential as much as it is textual. I guess I'm preaching in a way as one who <laughs> has done every single one of these, and as such suffered the consequences because of it. I found seven such consequences. Maybe you'll find more. But these are the consequences, the result of arguing with others. And again, we'll see this at the end, and I want to save enough time because at the end of the chapter, Paul again very explicitly talks about how the devil will seek to take us captive to do this for him. And so this is exactly what the devil is hoping to achieve and accomplish. And we're talking about Christians here, okay? The first one is in verse 14, and it's that it harms people. It hurts people. Here, Paul exhorts Timothy to not only remind God's people, but also to warn God's people against fighting. And interesting, I don't know if you caught it or not in verse 14, but it seems that what was happening was they were arguing with everyone about everything. Every word that said, no. And here comes the argument. <laughs> ah, I got to share this. Why not? Especially after I just said that. Now I got to share it. So. We post on social media and we schedule on YouTube the uh, prophecy update title and the teaching text and title on social media in advance, usually the day before, so Saturdays. So <laughs> they posted our, our team, we got a fabulous team, they posted today's teaching. Title, Stop Arguing, and then the text. Would you believe that somebody posted a comment, very argumentative, about the title of the teaching, Stop Arguing? You want to know what the, the combative, argumentative comment was? 
Well, that's, are you saying that we're not supposed to argue in defense of the gospel? Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding me? Every word. Can you, it's, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. You know, this uh, new website, we uh, made the decision after prayer to have a forum discussion on the site where people can, you know, just have these discussions, you know, over topics. And our social media guys on the mainland um, uh, realized that, oh my goodness, this was not what we had hoped it would be. And just the sheer volume of those that were on the forum, but I mean, they, and then people would ask us, the, the social media team, to delete their account because um, one, this was so heartbreaking, and this is kind of serious actually, and it's just, she was so devastated because a quote-unquote Christian was on the forum basically calling her names, questioning her salvation. And as I understand it, they even said things to her like, you know, you're going to burn in hell. Excuse me? Paul says, not only is arguing of no value. I mean, what do you, what do you accomplish? Here's a question. Sincerely, think about this question. Think through this question with me. Have you ever argued somebody into the kingdom? No, seriously, here you are, you're sharing the gospel, you're witnessing with somebody, you're just, you know, and you're yelling at them, they're yelling back, and then finally, boom, they just realize, oh my goodness, you're right. How do I, what must I do to be saved? I've never had that happen. Have you? I doubt that you have. Think about Romans 2.4. I just thought of this. This, I think, is the Holy Spirit. It's the kindness of God that leads a man to repentance, the kindness of God. So he says, first of all, it, it, it has no value. It will accomplish absolutely nothing. And more than that, it actually ruins, harms, hurts, injures those who engage in it. The second one, in verse 15, it brings shame. What Paul is saying when he says, present yourselves to God approved. And if you do, you won't be embarrassed or ashamed if you handle God's Word correctly. Now, some of your translations render it rightly dividing the Word of truth. I think it's a better translation because think of it this way. To rightly divide is to, to divide it evenly, rightly, so you're dividing it, and there's an equal amount on this side as there is on this side. It's not lopsided or one-sided. Stay with me. So when you rightly divide, correctly handle the Word of God, 
You're not going to be embarrassed or ashamed or called out on not rightly dividing God's Word. To rightly and correctly divide God's Word is to have a balanced understanding of God's Word. And here again, it seems that what was happening at this time when Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it was, they were taking issue with everything. Oh, the resurrection has already happened. Akin to what he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, the rapture's already happened. Which is why he had to write the second letter, the rapture's not happened. I know there are those, we, we talked about it today in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, by some letter there was a forged letter that was making its way around that supposedly was from Paul saying, you missed the rapture, you're in the tribulation, have a nice afternoon. Aloha. <laughs> and the Thessalonians are going, no way, they're freaking out. And Paul gets word and he says, no. And he writes the second letter to the Thessalonians and says, you've not missed the rapture. Who told you that? And look at the damage that was done because of that. All because they didn't rightly divide the word of truth. We're going to see this more in a moment. Number three, spreads like cancer. This is in verses 16 through 18. This is perhaps amongst the most destructive consequences of arguing. I mean, for Paul to liken it to cancer, or even gangrene for that matter, it metastasizes, it spreads, just like cancer does throughout the body. And that's what happens to the body of Christ. It spreads like a cancer. And so much so that in the end, it leads to a departing from the truth at best, and the actual destroying of some people's faith at worst. Just like you've likely never argued somebody into the kingdom, I wonder, have we ever argued somebody out of the kingdom? That's what Paul's saying here. Does not cancer kill? When it spreads throughout the body, it's game over. And so too does a combative spirit, an argumentative Christian, a quarreling Christian, it can spread like a cancer. Number four, verse 19, it leads to confusion. This is interesting for a number of reasons, chief of which is that Paul reminds Timothy that no matter what, and this is important, please listen, God's Word stands firm. Okay, so I'm on the receiving end of this letter saying, uh, the rapture's already happened, you're in the tribulation. Wait, 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 wait. You're confusing me. 
wait, not if you're rightly dividing the word of truth, because if you're rightly dividing the word of truth, you stand firm. Why do you stand firm? Because God's word is the final word. And you can stand firm on that. And nothing moves you. So here comes this false teaching, and it's spreading like cancer and causing confusion. <laughs> and here you are. <laughs> Was that bad? I, I don't mean to make that sound like in a pr proudful way, but, but, but it's a sanctified confidence. No, no, no. I know what God's Word says. I've rightly divided God's Word. You're sowing confusion. Uh, you're starting an argument. And, and by the way, this comes packaged with discernment. It's the discernment of the spirits. It's the testing of the spirits. So here's how it look, looks like. Here's what it will look like in the life of a Christian. Somebody comes and they start trying to, you know, uh, play games with the Scripture, and it starts spreading confusion. And then here's your discernment. And you can say, this is what God's Word says. I'm unmoved by you. You can't phase me. You can't move me. You can't confuse me. You're the one that's confused. I would like to unconfuse you. I want to lay hands on you in Jesus' name. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. While arguing and fighting oftentimes leads to confusion, we need not be moved or shaken if we're solid doctrinally. And by the way, I may bring it up again, but I'm going to at least bring it up now. This is so true when it comes to the sound doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture. You know, it's interesting in 2 Thessalonians, we talked about this in the prophecy update. Paul is very clear to say to the Thessalonians, uh, I know you're unsettled because of this forged letter that you've missed the rapture, that you're in the tribulation. I know you're alarmed. Don't be unsettled. Don't be alarmed. You need to stand firm on the Word of God. So here's how that works again. I'm looking at the, everything that's happening in the world, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, maybe we are. Maybe I didn't rightly divide God's Word. Maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong. No. Then you're going to be tossed about to and fro, back and forth, up and down, unstable. And God does not want you to be unstable. He wants you to be stable and stand firm on His Word. So here comes that wave of doctrine, that wind of doctrine. It just, oh, thanks for the breeze. It kind of was getting a little bit warm, a little trade wind. Breeze is nice. But if you're not solid, stable, standing firm, it's going to blow you over, blow you away, knock you down, move you. And you're going to be unstable, back and forth. I don't know. Stop. 
Number five, this is a biggie. Did I say that about the other ones? Well, this is a biggie, biggie. Okay. It hinders God's use of me. I don't know if it's possible to overstate the importance of what Paul says here in verses 20 and 21 concerning instruments useful to God. It's almost um, like it's parenthetical. I mean, he's talking about warning God's people, reminding God's people about arguing and being quarrelsome. The servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome. And then he goes off talking about in-house you have these vessels like, Paul, wait, 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 where are you going with this? Wait, wait, whoa, wait, wait, no, no, watch this. You've got these vessels, gold, silver, valuable, special, over here. And over here, you've got the, the wood, the bamboo, if you want. And that, that's common use. But when it's something special, you pull out the fan silverware, and the, the china, the gold, and the, the pl- oh, this is a special thing. Oh, yeah. Here's what Paul's saying. When you're given over to this, I can't use you for that special purpose, that work as a vessel that I desire to use you for, because you're marred. You know what the word profane means? I mean, we, we think of, when, when you hear that word, you think profanity, foul, vile, and certainly it is that. But the actual meaning of profane is to make common. When you profane, the name of Jesus Christ, you are bringing the name of Jesus Christ, the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. You're bringing it down and you're making it common. That's profane. God wants to use vessels that are not marred profaned for His special purpose, to do His special work. I think of it like this. I mean, just the way I think. (laughs) But I picture God. He's got this project. He's got this mission. And the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro throughout the earth, looking for a vessel a heart that is fully devoted to Him. And when He finds one, wow, watch me now. And He is strong on their behalf. He does grand and glorious things because He can. So here's the eyes of the Lord. And here's me. So he's scanning, he's searching throughout the earth, and he comes to the islands. He comes to the windward side of Oahu. And he says, oh, I could have, I so wanted to, but I can't. I can't use him for this. Oh, I wish I could. 
Maybe the time will come that I can. But I can't use him when he's like that. I need a servant who's not quarrelsome. Because I have this special mission that I need to send somebody on that requires kindness and gentleness and meekness and patience. Oh, patience. And he's impatient. He's not loving. He's unkind. Instead of being gentle, he's harsh. I can't use him. The sixth one in verses 22 through 24 is that it exposes immaturity. I, I chose to word it like this for a reason. I think you'll see why here in a moment. But the point that Paul is making here can be easily missed at first read because it relates to young people. And isn't it true, and wouldn't you agree, that when you're young, you have more of a proclivity for this? I'm convinced, I know in my own life, again, I'll just speak for myself, when you're younger, you have a lot more energy. When you get older, it's kind of like, my wife and I were talking one day, and we were musing over how, you know, we don't really argue much anymore. And of course, being the, you know, spiritually proud man of faith that I am, I chalked it up to, you know, spiritual maturity. Well, it's because we're so godly. And, <laughs> and the Holy Spirit's going, really? Really? That's what you think? No, it's not because you're godly. It's because you're exhausted. I mean, you're, you're looking at this thing, and you're thinking, and you ask yourself the question, you know, uh, is it worth it? Nah, let it go. <laughs> now, when you're younger, oh, really? Me? What about you? That's the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, you go on and on and on. Well, there's something to be said about physical and spiritual immaturity. But here's the thing. When you're young, you're more easily drawn into foolish, and I'm going to say it again, you'll forgive me, stupid arguments. When, you, when you're older and hope, hopefully wiser, wisdom, you realize, nah, I would be foolish. To, it's going to accomplish nothing. It's going to ruin, harm, hurt, injure. It's not worth it. And I think when you're younger and prone to this, it's evidence of your immaturity. Now let's talk about it in the spiritual sense. And it goes back to rightly dividing the word of truth. Have you ever considered that many of the arguments you get into, whether it's a husband-wife relationship in the marriage, children in parenting, co-workers in the work arena? I mean, you can just take it across the board in every arena of life. 
Consider this. Could it be that many of your arguments are evidence of your spiritual immaturity? I think about the writer of Hebrews. I, I don't like it, but it's true. The writer of Hebrews writes very, again, explicitly about, I mean, it's a scathing rebuke. You know, you guys are still on milk. You should be teaching God's Word right now. But you never matured. You never teethed so that you can handle meat. You still need milk. That's spiritual immaturity. And I would venture to say and suggest that many of our arguments are simply because we're spiritually immature. I've heard it said, and I believe it to be very true, painfully true, if I can say it like that, that the highest mark of spiritual maturity is when you can come to that place where you agree to disagree agreeably. That's spiritual maturity. That's spiritual maturity. Well, I wanted to save more time for this last one in verses 25 and 26. It traps me. It's a trap. It's a snare. It's the devil's trap. It's almost like Paul is saving the worst for last. You know how we say the best for last? This is the worst for last. It's kind of like, man, if this couldn't get bad enough, it just did. <laughs> when things couldn't get any worse, Paul has to say what he says here. Think about this. Now, this is where rightly dividing the word of truth comes in. A born again Christian cannot be demon possessed. Okay? That's impossible. That's impossible. That's why, again, when if you're not doctrinally settled and stable and set and standing, you'll hear about these deliverance ministries where they're actually casting demons out of Christians. That is not true. If there's an actual demon in that person and they're being cast out, they're not a Christian. They can't be. A demonic spirit cannot reside in a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit, indwelling them. That's impossible. So the reason I mention that and, and emphasize that is because for Paul to say this about Christians, that seems to indicate that while Christians cannot be demon-possessed, Christians can be demon-oppressed. Let me explain. Satan can get a hold of a Christian, a stronghold on a Christian's life, to where he can maneuver them, position them, and even cause them to do what He wants them to do. 
What does he want them to do? Oh, so discord. So discord. You know, many a ministry, many a church, and I would even venture to say many a marriage and a family has been destroyed from within. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church from without. But from within, and Satan knows that. He doesn't want you to know that. I think about the Israelites in the Old Testament. In fact, we have reference to it uh, and of it in the New Testament. It was called the doctrine of Balaam. Oh, interesting. What's, what's that about? Oh, it's found in the book of Numbers, of all places. Numbers? Really? Isn't that a boring book? Absolutely not. What's the book of Numbers about? Well, Numbers. <laughs> but it's so fascinating. So here's what happens. The numbers of the Israelites was growing and posing a threat to the enemy nations. And so the enemies of the Israelites set to curse and destroy the Israelites. How are they going to do it? Well, there's a guy by the name of Balak. You know the story? He hires a guy by the name of Balaam, Balaam who has a donkey. I'm, you're familiar with this donkey? This is a special donkey, by the way. <laughs> Apparently, he's a prophet, and he can pronounce curses and blessings. And whoever he pronounces a curse or a blessing on, a curse or a blessing comes upon them. And Balak says, I'm going to pay you big bucks. I need you to curse the Israelites. And here's Balaam. <laughs> okay, how much? Where do I sign? And he does it. So he sets out on his donkey. And <laughs> I love this. this is the, by the way, this is not based on a true story. This is a true, this actually happened. The donkey actually spoke to Balaam. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on a camel to see that? And it's not so much that the donkey spoke to Balaam, it's that he talked back. He's arguing with the donkey. Anyway, what does the donkey tell him? Don't even think about it. What are you doing? Stop. And he forges ahead anyway. And so here he is. He's getting ready now. He's in view of the camp of the Israelites, camped in their numbers, according to that boring book in the Bible called the book of Numbers. And he starts to pronounce a curse. And what comes out of his mouth? I mean, not just a blessing. Oh, it is such a beautiful blessing. And Balak's going, hey, what's up with this? I'm paying you to curse him, not bless him. He's like, he's like I don't know what happened. I'm, I'm trying. Hey, let me try again. And he tries again. And it's even more beautiful, the blessing. So Balak is so frustrated. And he says, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's go to a higher vantage point, a higher peak. Because that was the thought in that pagan culture that if you were, you know, in a certain area or territory, you had more command of the spirits. This actually has a, it's root in another false teaching present day. 
uh, territorial spirits. Nowhere in the Bible do you see this. That is not biblical. Rightly divide the Word of God. You know, sorry, just real quick. You know, the prayer walks, we're going to have a prayer walk. I'm like, wow, where's that? (laughs) Book of Acts, Paul walked a prayer walk around Lystra. No. Where's that in the Bible? We got to, we got to take authority and dominion over the territorial spirits. That's not biblical. That's pagan. Know the word. Rightly divide the word. So he takes him to this high mountain peak, and sure enough, he tries to pronounce this curse on him. And I mean, it's even a more glorious blessing that comes out. Finally, Balak's had enough. You're fired. I don't know if he got paid or not. We don't see it in the, <laughs> in the book of Numbers. But very interesting. You get to Revelation. In the letters to the seven churches, and we hear about the doctrine of Balaam. What was the doctrine of Balaam? Oh, he couldn't curse and destroy the Israelites from without. But what he did was he got the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men and destroy them from within. Do you know why he could not curse them from atop that high mountain peak? That's Numbers chapter 6. Here's the list of all the numbers. You got 12 tribes, four camps, three tribes each, to the east, to the west, to the north, and to the south. And we have the exact numbers recorded for us. And the east and west, pretty much the same. North, not so much. South, more numbers. And the tabernacle right smack in the middle of that formation of those numbers in the shape of a cross before a Roman cross had ever been thought of for crucifixion. There could be no curse because of the cross, because Jesus the Christ would take the curse of sin upon him. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There's no curse. You cannot curse. You cannot destroy from without. But you sure can from within. And again, Satan doesn't want us to know that. So what does he do? He infiltrates. He doesn't attack the church from without. He joins the church from within. Don't look at the person sitting next to you. (laughs) He's in the church from within, sowing discord, division. It's textbook. Divide and conquer from within. That's how he's going to destroy. That's how he destroys churches. That's how he destroys pastors. That's how he destroys marriages. That's how he destroys families. I want to close with Proverbs chapter 6. I want to read verses 16 through 19. These six things the Lord hates. 
Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And we have the list. Verse 17. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil. Verse 19, I, a false witness who speak lies, speaks lies. Uh, the reason I pause for just a moment is because this is very troubling on social media, particularly on YouTube. You've got Christians, pastors, YouTubers, whatever they are, and they are viciously attacking brothers in Christ. And if that weren't bad enough, they're falsely accusing them. God hates that. God hates that. Make no mistake about it. God takes note of that. You're bearing false witness. You're falsely accusing. And here's the, by the way, we are never to entertain an accusation against an elder, a brother, a sister in Christ without the presence of two or more witnesses. That's on you if you do that. So somebody comes to you and, did you hear about, <gasps> no. And then you, you, you call up or, you know, text so-and-so, and oh, you always do it in such spiritual and noble ways, you know. Hey, we need to pray for so-and-so. Did you hear? What? Oh, we need to pray for them. Really? How about you call them? Pray with them. Don't gossip about them. Spread rumors and false accusations about them. Pray for them. Better yet, pray with them. I have to say that I've, I've witnessed this firsthand over the years on the mainland. I've seen this destroy people's lives false accusations. And then here's the seventh one. And it could be seen as the six are things that God hates. But the seventh one, God doesn't only hate this one. This one is an abomination. Oh, what is it? One who sows discord among brethren. That's an abomination. I think the question needs to be asked, why? You know, there are places in God's Word where I think we would do well to ask the why question. Okay, uh, why, Lord, did you deem it necessary to have the Holy Spirit inspire the writer to include this in the pages of Holy? Why is this in my Bible? Why do I need to know this? What's the why behind the what? We know what God hates. We know what 
is an abomination to the Lord. But why? Why is the sowing of discord among brethren an abomination to the Lord? Here's why. Because it was God who was first on the receiving end of this in heaven with Lucifer, who sowed discord and division in heaven when he exalted himself and declared of himself, I will ascend my throne above the Most High. By the way, in the prophecy update today, do you know the one thing that Satan wants more than anything else? Our worship. That's why the Antichrist, who will be the personification of Satan himself, will demand to be worshiped. So he is cast out of heaven and he splits the angels, a third of the angels. The first church split, if you will, from within. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And this is how he does it. And this is why it's an abomination to the Lord. One last thing. Jesus said, God hates divorce, right? Let's just talk about it for just a moment. Let's ask the why question. Okay, we know that God hates divorce, but why? Why does God hate divorce? Answer, He hates divorce because of what divorce does to the divorced. Let me say that again, not a play on words. The reason why, why God hates divorce is because of what it does to the marriage, the husband, the wife, the children. It's devastating. That's why he hates it. And furthermore, he hates divorce because of what marriage represents. What does marriage represent? Marriage is a microcosm of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Did you know that you're betrothed? You're engaged to be married? Yeah. <laughs> Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Who's the bride? We are the bride. We're engaged to be married. And the wedding date has been set. Oh, when is it? Don't know. Can't send out invitations. <laughs> if you did, it would be like, date, no man knows. Hour, no man knows. <laughs> Time, be ready. Right? And when that trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first in the bodily resurrection, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And Jesus is going to take us to that place that He prepared for us in His Father's house. The bridal chamber, as we're learning on Thursday nights in the book of the Song of Solomon. And He's going to take us to that place He prepared for us, 
If it were not so, he would not have told us. And that where he is, we will be also. Oh, what are we going to do? We're going to consummate and celebrate our marriage to the Lamb for seven years. As one said it, kind of clever, while the world is tribulating, we will be celebrating. And you know what happens after the end of the seven, the number of completion, when it's completed? The bride and the bridegroom emerge from the bridal chamber, and there's a huge wedding feast. The wedding feast of the Lamb. Because now we're married. He's no longer our bridegroom. He's our husband. And that's why Satan hates marriage. That's why he particularly hates, with evil through and through, the Christian marriage. Because of what it represents. Why don't you stand? We'll close in prayer. Lord, I, I did my best. You're going to have to take it from here by the Holy Spirit as only you can and always do and start that process as grueling as it might be of making it real in our Christian lives, Lord. For any who in a good way have been convicted, not condemned, convicted. Lord, I thank you that you forgive, that your grace is sufficient, that you don't hold this against us, that this has been paid for in full, and every day can be a new beginning. Your mercies are new every morning. Lord, don't pay us as this sin deserves. Be merciful, Lord, to us. Forgive us for all the damage we've done in the lives of others because of this. Lord, thank you for certainly a strong word, a hard word, but it's a good word. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.